My name is Eric Ward, and I'm executive director of Western State Center, a Pacific Northwest regional civil rights organization committed to expanding racial and gender equity in America. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University. These conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. I remember, Eric, you and I were on um, some panel somewhere at some point, <laughs> and and you had this right. anecdote that, frankly, I thought was so useful to the point where I think I may have used it a couple times, but I was hoping you would be able to talk about this analogy that you made between uh, extremism and fashion week. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, which, you know, my obsession with shoes um, <laughs> is is, uh, is likely where I came up with that. You know, Oren, we were on a panel and we were trying to talk about, I think someone had asked us a question about, you know, um, were we overly concerned with white nationalism? I think that might have been been the question. That's right. And and I responded with um, this crazy uh, allegory to to fashions, and and what I was saying in in short was, you know, we watch these like fashion news clips that are on the on the news all the time, and they take us to London, you know, Paris, New York, uh, Tokyo. They show off like these these latest fashions. And I have this love-hate thing with these fashions. You know, I watch these models coming down the runway, and I sit there and I look at the fashions they're wearing, and and inevitably most of us say, oh, my God, look at that. That is so way out there. That is so extreme. No one's ever going to wear that. And we're right, right? Most of the fashions that come down the runways um, are never to be seen again. That's right. But they're influencers, right? They're, they're, they're influencers. And so if you are shopping for clothes five years later, three years later, I guarantee you that you won't see those fashions, but you'll see clothing that was deeply influenced by those fashions. And I was like, I think waxing poetic about like the early days of CNN and 70s fashions and how I never thought they would ever come back and <laughs> yet here they were you know with all the paisleys and the bell bottoms and all this stuff and I was just drawing an allegory that in the same way that the fashion industry seeks to influence the the cultural mainstream of America so too had the white nationalist movement uh, attempted to influence what was happening in the mainstream of political discourse. And, you know, my my summation of that was like the fashion industry, right? The white nationalist movement has been just as successful, right? That it has moved from this kind of extremist aberrational, you know, aberration space uh, to what is mainstream politics in America. And that we shouldn't wait until things are in the mainstream before we take them seriously. Mm. So I think that may have been what I was talking about. You know, in order to be able 
to talk about whether it's white supremacy or, you know, racism or anti-Semitism or hatred to any audience is complicated, right? I mean, whether it is. how do you deal with finding a way to talk to diverse audiences that you do about an issue that is just going to hit people differently, right? You know, what, what I remember, I actually remember this panel and I thought what was interesting about that night is, is you know, both you and I kind of approached it with, um, I think, an idea that there was uh, something everyone in that audience could do. It may not be the same thing. It may not be from the same approach. But I think, you know, what I've always appreciated about you is you've always said there is something you can do as an individual. There is something you can do as an organization. There's something you can do as 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 a community. And that night, I think you that, there was a pretty diverse audience. I think you and I were were trying to open up space for everyone in that audience to to see themselves, right in the in the struggle against um, overcoming uh, uh, bigotry and and uh, hate group organizing in the United States. So, you know, I kind of take this approach and. Uh, or I carry this 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 kind of sense of the world. Not everyone agrees with it. Not everyone has to agree with it. But I just feel like most people, like the majority of people in this country, the majority of people in this world, really just want to live, love, and work free from fear and bigotry, mm. right? Mm. Most people just want to, they want to raise their kids. They want to hang out with their friends. They want a you know a job that that pays that you know allows them to pay the bills and and healthcare right. People want a better life for their children primarily right, and they want a better life for themselves and and the folks they care about. And I think often in the world of you know politics and, and social change, we kind of forget those fundamentals right. Um, we add lots of different things uh, uh, to it. Right. I, I sit on, you know, the, the left of, of the political spectrum. Right. We talk a lot about freedom. Right. And I often reflect, boy, we have a lot of rules about who gets to, to be, <laughs> you know, over here. Like a lot of rules for a group that talks about freedom and, and, and inclusion. And I try not to bring those with me. And so I often approach people with, you know, what are the values we have in common? Right, not ideology, mm. right, not political positions, mm. but what are our common values, and can we build together off of those common values? So, when I'm looking at an audience, you know, whether there are white nationalists sitting in that audience, whether right, there are folks who are conservative, there are folks who are liberal, folks who consider themselves radical, right, different religions, I just try to look at the audience and and think to myself, you know, I want to find the best attribute in each person in that audience, right? And I want to buff that amazing attribute into a diamond, right? <laughs> and if, if we help, like, buff those attributes into a diamond, it's amazing what people do, right? It's, it's amazing the transformations uh, folks make. And I feel that's been a lot of our, you know, our work at Western State Center, right, Anti-Defamation League, other folks, right, doing work around hate. At the end of the day, right, it's less about the hate groups and it's about empowering people 
who want to live in communities that are free from fear. Right. There's almost like this, um, you know, ecosystem in combating <laughs> extremism and hate in this country, whether it's, yes. you know, community orgs or uh, philanthropies or uh, academia and, and so on and so forth. And it seems like you've held many of those roles sometimes at the same time. And I guess my question for you is like, where do you feel most at home in that ecosystem? Yeah, well, you know, mostly I feel at home like sitting in my friend's backyard, you know, when they're barbecuing, you know, so I'll, I'll just throw that out to everyone, you know, listening <laughs> right now. I probably feel most at home in your backyard if you are barbecuing, right? And I am the eating, you know, guest of, of that barbecue. You know, at, at the end of the day, right, at, at the end of the day, our job is not to convince those who are easily convinced, right? Um, our job is to also struggle with those who are struggling around the idea of what it means uh, to now live in an inclusive democracy, right? One that is increasingly going to become people-centered, right, transparent, um, and accountable. And that uh, doesn't sound like a bad thing, but all change produces anxiety, mm. right? And um, our job as organizers is to help people cope, right, with changes. It's, it's not for us to judge whether someone should be comfortable or uncomfortable with that change. It's, it's our job to support them in the change that is happening around us. That's why educational projects become really important, right? That's why social contact, right? Mm -hmm. It's why we think, you know, dealing with spatial segregation and, and housing and education and transportation, right? And, and jobs becomes critically important, right? The, the more we actually get to spend time with one another, right? Across lines of politics, religion, race, and ethnicity, uh, we actually find out we have so much in common. And uh, one of the things we have in common, Oren, and I'll just tell all of America this, what we really have in common is probably 90% of us are nerds, right? <laughs> and um, and it's actually kind of a beautiful thing, and um, it's okay. It makes us a little shy. But when we're all in a room together and you get all of that nerdiness together, it's actually really creative. It's it's beautiful. It's it's full of energy. So you know, you're you're again mentioning an approach and a perspective that sort of creates uh, empathy, right? Something that's sort of required to to meet people sort of halfway. Something that's just completely lost in a lot of sort of social media platforms. Um, that's I, right. I, and I just mean even like people are just sort of not communicating well on those platforms. You know, my my sense is. Those are the real conversations that need to happen, but um, they're actually not the hardest ones. The, the, the hardest conversations are understanding that our, our goal in life is not to convert one another, right? That's, that's not, um, that's a very um, um, uh, binary model, right? This idea that you have to see the world absolutely in, in my way or there's, there's no room for you. And, you know, my, my sense is that individual, we forget the power of, of individual contact, of interpersonal relationships, right? That um, there are just more things that, that unite us and that we, we hold in common. We all have embarrassing moments. 
We all have moments where we were very proud. We all have moments when we felt isolated and alone. We forget that sometimes we can start the conversations around the things we have in common. We don't always have to start conversations around the things we disagree with, right? And we can do that without letting go of our values, right? In the same way, Orin, we have to get to this place where we stop being afraid of people, right? And um, stop being, like, when did we become so afraid um, as organizers of, of, of actual people and how complex um, people are and, Yes, people don't, you know, people aren't rational. Emotions and feelings aren't rational, but most people leave, lead with their emotions and feelings, and we can't be afraid to, to meet it there, right? We don't have to get permission. We don't have to accept values that, that promote genocide or discrimination against other folks, right? But we can, we can still, while pushing back against those, continue to acknowledge the values we, we have in common. That's what helps us bridge those divides, build those relationships. Uh, because I, I actually think the majority of folks actually do want the world um, where their kids uh, get to go to school, right, without being harassed, regardless of what color they are, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of their gender identity, Right. Um, uh, people really want that world. And it's it's right here. Right. It's, it's not like it's 100 years away. Right. That world is actually right here around us. We just need the aspirational will to believe in one another uh, enough to, to actualize it. And yet it's the folks on the extremes that tend to, you know, have the narrative focused on. Right. That's so, right. you know, having a more nuanced conversation, having a conversation that is more representative of what most people actually believe, kind of what you're talking about, is That's actually right. harder to access. It's, you know, look, we, we have to show folks and, and, you know, keep an eye on organizations who um, try to propagate violence through the promotion of, you know, anti this anti-Semitic racist worldview, right? This idea uh, that's grounded in not inclusion, but exclusion. But here's where I think we need to change, right? This is, this is where I think we need to change attitudes, right? The, we need to understand, though, that the folks that those hate groups are trying to recruit are just as vulnerable as we are, right? They are they're vulnerable in a different way, but they are still just as vulnerable. And we don't demonize them simply because they are the ones who are being targeted for, for, for recruitment. You know, I, I saw this, you know, I grew up in LA during the, the beginnings, right? The early beginnings of, of the, um, the quote unquote war on drugs, right? Mm. Which we now know through historical documents was, largely driven by um, uh, racial bias, right, targeting black and, and Latino communities. You know, it was a bad policy, but what made it even a bad policy, even a worse policy, is it didn't just target folks who were um, dealing or, or, or selling drugs, right? 
um, it targeted everyone in the community, right? Everyone who might know a gang member, anyone who might know someone who was dealing drugs in the neighborhood, then automatically got labeled, right, as part of um, this, you know, gang drug culture. And we were treated in the same ways, right, um, as if we were the folks dealing the drugs, right? Mm. So that was a problem. The second was there was no, like, understanding of kind of the larger economic uh, uh, conditions within the Black and Latino communities that um, made drug dealing one of the only kind of survival economies that folks could put their hands on. So what happened then is that it built kind of large resistance right, to uh, this policing culture, right, that was appearing in our communities, right, it created, there, there was no partnership, really, between the community uh, and, and law enforcement, and it set the stage in some ways for some of the things we are seeing now um, happening in our society around us, right, with Move for Black Lives, a call to reform uh, policing in America, and in there lies a lesson, right, as we do move to hold this white nationalist movement accountable, right, we also have to understand that they are tapping into some legitimate grievances, right, within the white constituencies they are, um, they are tapping into and recruiting from. Now, those legitimate grievances right, are being racialized. Right? The answer the white nationalists are providing is, the way you solve those grievances is you, you engage in a race war. I think you're the only person I know who can take lessons from racist drug policies in Los Angeles and turn them into a reason why we need to be empathetic towards burgeoning white nationalists. It's a... Uh, yeah. That may be why I'm a little controversial. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but it's true, right? I mean, everyone... You know, I'm not talking about white nationalist organizers, right? I'm not talking about, you know, white nationalists. But the majority of folks who are attracted to white nationalism, right, don't really understand what white nationalism is. Doesn't They don't understand the, the dangers, right? They don't understand that most white nationalist leaders have been killed by other white nationalists, right? Most white people in this country targeted for political extremism have actually been killed by uh, white nationalism, right. white nationalists and other far-right elements in this country. White folks don't understand uh, 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 the danger, but it doesn't make them any less vulnerable, as I said before, right? And, um, right, those folks are also looking for answers. And why would we not compete for them? I, I think strategically that's a bad idea, but morally, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, if I'm sitting here thinking, right, the white population is not worthy of, of my engagement. I, I, yeah. I don't want to live in that world. And I don't actually think most people want to live in that world. When we talk about white supremacists, we are increasingly talking about sort of these bad actors, right? Uh, somebody who, um, you know, shoots a... Uh, a, a congregation in Pittsburgh or in uh, Charleston. And yet, you know, here in the summer of 2020, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with, in ways that I, I certainly haven't seen before, the, the, the ideas of systematic and institutional white supremacy, 
and racism. Yeah. yeah, now look, it's it's why a little bit I distinguish that's why you hear me sometimes use the the term white nationalism, right? I I, I don't really get into too deep of a debate because I, I think um, there's much more discussion that needs to be had around like terms, but I use it to distinguish from the system of white supremacy, right? This this historical and present day system of discrimination and and exploitation. The one we see around us, it's it's not always so visible and sometimes our aspirations of, of where we are as a country to distort reality. Mm. But why I distinguish, um, so we could take from that then, right? Then why are we focusing on these organized um, white nationalists? Are they really a big deal? And my response is, actually, this is not a hierarchy here. This is not a choice point, right? right? right. Both of them are critically important for us to, to address. We both have to continue our work of dismantling inequality in America. And we have to contend with this social movement that is actually trying to overthrow the United States of America, right? And while it's small, as we've already talked about, even small groupings of folks can have a huge impact um, on a society. It could rip the rest of us apart as we are actually trying to work together to solve real challenges. And finally, what I would say on this point is we have to remember at the end of the day, right? Uh, hate groups, right? White nationalists, they don't come to our communities bringing racism or anti-Semitism, homophobia, right? Islamophobia, uh, sexism with them. They simply organize the bigotry that already exists in our communities. So the best way we can defend ourselves is by dealing with those underlying uh, systemic forms of bias uh, that prevent all of us from being fully actualized citizens of, of an abundant United States of America. In terms of work, though, Eric, and, and, and speaking about this and learning about it and collaborating with others, how, how do you deal with it? How do you make time for yourself, for mental health, um, you know, after you know, several years now of a pretty nonstop barrage of extremism and hate in this country. Yeah, look, um, I have, um, this, this is a really important question. Um, it has been a very long three uh, years in, in America and I know folks are exhausted. I know folks have been carrying, you know, so much weight. Um, and it can just, it can just feel overwhelming. Um, the way that I try to deal with this um, is through a number of, of entry points. The, the first is, is I, I try to remember, right, my job is not to carry all of that weight. I can't carry all of that weight. Mm. It's merely to find the weight that I can carry um, and, and to carry that weight as long as I can. So I, I, I try to remember, you know, you have to find the thing that you do. And this is why I often tell folks, you know, folks say, what can I do? 
And I say, you know what? You don't have to join a new organization. I love when people join Western State Center. It means a lot. It, it's a tangible way of like folks showing support for our work and, and the vision, a great place to, to get involved. But what I tell folks um, is you're probably already in some kind of organization. I bet you're in a knitting club or a garden club or a sports, you know, sports league or, you know, fantasy football or, you know, you, you, you name it. Maybe you're a musician, maybe you're an artist. And um, how can you manifest your values? Um, and how can you push back against all the ugliness in the world utilizing the spaces you are already in. Maybe you, you, you attend a house of worship that has a social justice committee, right, or um, uh, uh, a service committee, right, to, to dig in where you already are, right, and where you already feel some comfortability and start the conversation there. Everyone's work doesn't have to look like mine for us to be successful. It has to look like yours, right? And everyone should be asking themselves what their work looks like. So that's one piece. The, the second thing that I remind folks is that even as you're carrying your load, it is okay to take breaks. This is not a sprint. We've heard that before. Mm -hmm. But neither is this a marathon. It's a relay race. Right. And sometimes we have to hand off to others for them to then run a few laps while we get a break. It will come back to us. Right. That baton will come back and we'll pick it up. It is OK to take a break. This is not a 30 minute sitcom. This is not a two hour movie. Right. This is our life. This is our country. This will take generations uh, for us to contend with. But I'll tell something, folks, one more thing. The third thing to know, and, um, you know, uh, I'll just say it. The, the third thing to know is we've actually have already won, right? And um, the problem is, is we're, we're so conditioned for the 30-minute sitcom that we're always waiting for someone to signal, someone else to signal to us that we've won. So I'm going to signal. I'm going to be that signal for everyone. We actually have won. This is not a struggle around winning anymore, right? This is a struggle now about actualizing what it means to win. And what it means to win is that everyone has space at this table, right? That this is about abundance. As I wrote recently, right, we have to shift our thinking from winning the war to winning the peace, that's what it means to govern. And when you win, you are responsible for constructing the new center, right? Because it's in that center where people dialogue, where things, um, things get decided, and that takes compromise. And you can't have a compromise if there's no center. We have won, but winner doesn't take all. That's a fantasy sports game, right? <laughs> That's a fantasy world. Winning means responsibility. Winning means carrying leadership and being leaderful. It means, right, showing people what the future could look like in real time. Not 50 years from now, but right here, right now. And our responsibility is to simply give them the space to do that. Where, where can um, 
uh, listeners go for more information about Western State Center, yourself? Yeah. Um, so folks can visit us at westernstatescenter.org or wedefenddemocracy.org. Uh, and uh, we encourage folks to be in touch. You can follow us on, on Twitter, right? Uh, my Twitter handle is at Bulldog Shadow. Right, that was going to be my rest, pro wrestling name when I was seven. Um, it's it's it. Uh, I never got to be a pro wrestler, uh, but Twitter sometimes feels like uh, wrestling. So um, I enjoy, encourage folks to follow me there, and we can pick up the conversation. Thank you again. Really, really appreciate this conversation and and just being able to to speak with you over the last couple of years. Thank you so much, Oren. Appreciate the time, and I promise to take a little break. later in life that a lot of the folks that I loved were actually built on some like racist characteristics, you know, like that's right. They were and you know those ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and training that enable law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies, to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University's Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.